Welcome to this edition of the Morrinsville Baptist Podcast. Uh, It's great to have you listening in and we hope that this message comes as a great encouragement and blessing to you. Uh, If you'd like to know any more information about Morrinsville Baptist Church, please check out our website at www.morrinsvillebaptist.com. So I guess the, um, a lot of the, um, the purpose of all of this is to try and help us to read the Bible better, understand it better, and just to uh, make us uh, uh, just more, uh, give us a greater understanding of who God is and his ways. And it's so easy to um, misinterpret things and uh, at least have a framework in place that reduces that risk of coming to sort of wrong understandings. As I said to those in church this morning, we, we could have come up with a, a command for our, our young boys to be peeing on the walls this morning if you could uh, misinterpret that verse from 1 Samuel 25. Um, before we go into this subject here, I guess I just want to quickly recap on last week, um, just to see who, what Judy can remember, and Tom, Tom's got part of the excuse, is we talked about you know, good interpretation or bad interpretation, and can you remember what the antidote is to bad interpretation? Good interpretation. Well done, Julie. <laughs> that, that's right. And every, every, everyone who opens the Bible is interpreting it. Even if we say, oh, we don't, we do. We all bring our own lens. And uh, there's nothing new under the sun. And so people who often come up with new ideas about, I've found some new secret revelation in the Bible. Well, we have thousands of years of people studying the Bible, godly people, and um, we're saying someone's come up with something that everyone has missed in history of commentating and understanding the Bible, many godly people in that. So I've got to be careful about that, but we need to put God's, God's Word together, uh, uh, God's Word in, into practice together, not in isolation, because we need to test one another. But it can be a bit hard work, can't it, studying the Word, understanding everything? That's not kind of easy. Now, I think this is the last one. Can you remember what exegesis means? Anyone know what exegesis means? There aren't too many hard words. This is just from last week. Isn't that just understanding what it says? Isn't that an open interpretation? Not quite. Not quite, no. What exegesis is new one here, so we'll we'll let you you off. But it's drawing out what was in the text, is what it means. And so the goal of understanding is to, of the text is to understand what the original author and the original recipients would have, would have heard by bridging the gap of, of space and time and culture and language. We want to get back to what they were thinking. And so that's often the challenge because there's a bit of difference, isn't there? When you think even between here and, and Europe or Britain, there's lots, lots of cultural changes, even though we share the same language. And so we just looked at this at the end of last week. Um, is just there's a journey here. There's a bridge in the middle, in the middle, which is culture, language, time, situation, covenants, and so forth. We have to cross that bridge to understand what was going on in the world of the Bible, understand what they were teaching, and bring that meaning back. And number three, across that bridge to see what the principle was that would help us to understand how we apply it today. And so, whatever principle we come up would never be way off the mark in terms of what the original author meant. It would be somewhere, somewhere similar to the original meaning, allowing for our, our context and, and, and culture. So that's part of the journey that we'll be going through over the weeks ahead and looking at different, uh, different topics of the Bible. The other thing we talked about was g- genre. You remember genre, what genre is? Genre. Type of book. 
Yeah, so it's what, or what, yeah. What, what, are, what are examples? History, poetry, History, poetry. Narrative. narrative, that's right. We showed that video mm-hmm. last week as well, just to highlight that, right. you know, that we understand it in our own languages. We watch TV, we see a commercial, none of us are surprised that the commercial has nothing to do with the documentary or film that we might be working. It's a different, gen- it's a different genre, mm-hmm. but we understand that. And so we have to understand that what was going on back in the Bible times as well. And so that's part of it. So uh, the goal of this series is trying to know the whole Bible story better. We did the Kingdom of God last year, and uh, we're building on that. And to think about and know about reading, the, uh, having the value of reading sections of the Bible or books of the Bible in terms of getting good context. As Christians here, we, we believe that this, the, the Spirit uh, inspired the Word of God. And I've talked about the categories of genres. The, one of the challenges that we're looking at tonight is, is translations from Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. And I guess the whole challenge is to try and understand the authorial intent, what the author was trying to say to his audience at that time, and then how we can apply that to ourselves, um, which is a biblical principle. So this is kind of the journey we'll go on in, in the weeks ahead, is, um, is, is to do that and to go through the books. As a reminder, the, the big, big story here is that God has been a God who makes covenants. We looked at this last year. And from covenant language in the Garden of Eden, and through different covenants, you understood the Bible or the commands of the Bible in different ways, depending on which covenant was, uh, was enacted at that time. And we're under the new covenant, which goes on to today as well. So there's, there's, that, that, there's that story, that, sorry, that, that, that covenant underpins the whole Bible story. And that covenant, oh gosh, that covenant also um, um, talks about the kingdom of God and how it was perfect at the beginning, fell, and then God's, God's story and journey of restoring the kingdom of God. And so we talked a lot about that last year. And so when we're reading the Bible and reading different books, it's helpful to remember those covenants, what covenants r- relates to that book, and also where we are in that cycle of the, of, of the kingdom. We're not in the perfect kingdom yet, are we? Or does anyone think we're in the perfect kingdom yet? No. No. And so, but that, that, that's a journey, that's where we're heading to. We're under the proclaimed kingdom. So it's really important to get that big picture as we go through the Bible. So tonight we're going to be looking at the, uh, the, the issue of, of translations. So Karen asked a really good question earlier on. She said she was asking, what translation of the Bibles do you have? Do you use? What have you got so, there? Um, I've got a, quite a few Bibles, but yep. this one is the chain reference Bible. It's a Thompson's chain reference. Thompson's. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. New Living Translation. New Living Translation. The NIV and Complete Jewish Bible. Oh, she's a, she's a real scholar here. She's got two <laughs> translations. <laughs> Anyone else? What are you using, Sam? <clears throat> NLT. What have you got? A pink one. A pink one. <laughs> <laughs> NLT. NLT. I've got the NK New King James. New King James down here. We're the NIV group. NIV, okay. And I've got the the authorised King James version here. And, I, and really, you ought to be using this version. It's too hard to understand. Too hard to understand. Why not? Careful. Why, why would they have to use that version when when the meanings and the words have changed? Like even the describe your job. <laughs> 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 that, that's okay. 
but, but, but some people will say that, that this is such a beautiful version, we should only read it in English, we should only use this version. Um, and that's, that's, a, that's a challenge, but there, there are lots of different, different versions. How many spoken languages do you think there are in the world? Spoken languages? More, 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 more. Any more other offers? More than a million. A million? I would have said it was in the tens of thousands. Considering some places have over a hundred dialects. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Well, I think there's about seven thousand three hundred. I get the, the the stats in the morning. How many full translations do you think of the Bible there are around the world? In in different languages. Well, I'll show you some statistics oh, now. Yeah, so there's about 700 odd, I think, full translations, language translations, I think is the answer. So this is the Wycliffe statistics. One in five people, 20% of the world are still waiting for the Bible in their own language. 7,378 uh, spoken languages, and only 717 have languages, have a full Bible in their languages. Mm. 1,500-odd have languages of, of just the New Testament only, and uh, just about 1,200 almost of some portions. And there are 2,899 languages that have active translation right now. They're trying to translate it into different languages. So there's still a lot to do, isn't there? Is it the thing like with a lot of those languages, there's spoken by people, sorry, um, with a lot of those languages, are they not spoken by people who also have a second language that's used by more people in the district or the region? So that there might be um, a Bible translated for that sort of common language? Yeah, um, some of them will be multilingual, and so they'll be able to read it in different languages. But in terms of trying to cover every language, mm -hmm. that's what those statistics are, are saying, because not everyone might be multilingual. So in the Bible times, uh, in the New Testament times, people may have spoken three languages. If you go across Europe, they're often speaking two or three languages quite normally. But here in New Zealand, <coughs> how many languages do we typically know? One and a little bit. One and a little bit, you know, maybe Tereg, um, a, a little bit. And so um, there's a lot, a lot of way to go, but um, that's kind of part of the challenge that we face. And so obviously we're, we're looking at English translations. And so what we're going to cover tonight is just the volume of manuscripts. Now these are just copies of, of the Bible in the, the text of Britain. We're going to touch on these things, the originals. They have been lost. We only have copies. There are no original copies of the Bible left. We only have copies of them. And uh, for the Hebrew Bible, our two earliest couple copies are a thousand years apart. And do you know how different they were? not very different, which, was, which stunned scholars at how closely accurate that they were, and it affirms the accuracy of the Bible. And for the New Testament, there's about 6,000 manuscripts or portions of manuscripts that we found around the Mediterranean region, and a lot have been found in the last 100, 150 years that simply weren't, weren't, uh, weren't available years ago. So we'll just touch on those things, and then we're going to look about um, the changing English language, how the language changes over time, just talk about gay clothing this morning, the King James Version, that's not so relevant today, and then we're just going to look at some different translation methodologies, that sounds a bit hard, but it won't be as hard 
uh, as it suggests, and just the quality of manuscripts impact on the translations that we use. So we're going to touch on those things. So, for, so I'm just going to show you a couple of charts. Hopefully, it's, it's not too hard. I don't, you don't, these are all doc, famous ancient documents written by different people. I don't want you to get too hung up on that. Other than the first two bars, you can see dwarf everything else. And they are documents around the New Testament. That the number of copies that we have of the Bible, of the New Testament, far outweigh any other ancient document that we're fam that, that's famous. From Caesar to Homer, Livy, all the great, famous Greek authors. Is that there are only a tiny number of manuscripts from many of them, and yet we, we value them. And think, wow, aren't they amazing what they wrote. And, and so the Bible is like Mount Everest compared to everything else in terms of evidence or manuscript. So here, I just want to show you now, just to look in a different way. Here again, some of those ancient works by very famous people from Plato, Caesar, Homer. And the earliest manuscript that you'll see in, in, the, uh, in the second column there. And then the gap of time between the, the earliest copy that we have. So if you take Caesar's Gallic Wars, the copies we have were 850 years after the events happened. That's a long time, isn't it? It's a bit like, as, as I said, the two copies of the Hebrew Bible, a thousand years apart. For most other documents, there, is, there are significant gaps. And you see the number of manuscripts in the, in the um, right-hand column? Look at the New Testament. It's only, the earliest manuscript is 125 AD. You think John lived until the 90 AD? That's only the next generation. And look at how many copies. So the gap of time is much, much lower for the, uh, the, the copies of, of the Bible compared to any other document. So that can give us some confidence, isn't it? That uh, we've got a lot of information. doesn't mean it's right, but we've got a lot of information there. And so no one has any problem believing that uh, Caesar wrote about the Gallic Wars in, the, um, in, in 50 BC, and they won't question those documents, but people will question the Bible. Because whether you believe Caesar did anything in 50 BC doesn't really affect how we live, does it? Whether he wrote that or not. But it does matter if you reject or believe in the Bible, doesn't it? And so that's one of our challenges. Now this is probably, I'm not sure, Again, this is just showing that, no, I won't, I'll, I'll skip this chart, it's just, it's just too much on there. But basically, it's trying to show here the gap between the earliest manuscripts or fragments of manuscripts um, um, and when they're actually written. Again, for the Bible, it's very small, those gaps, and much bigger for any other document. So, and I guess this is the last one I will want to show you, and then we'll be out of these statistics. But this is, this is quite important here. Again, it's showing the same kind of writers, the gaps uh, over time from the earliest copy uh, to the, compared to when the original, original was written, the number of copies available. And the last column is accuracy of the copies. Now, uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, it says that uh, of first importance, um, um, Christ died according to the scriptures, was buried, raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and three people witnessed his resurrection. 
Does that sound right? How many people witnessed the resurrection of Jesus? Over 500. Over 500. Mm. So, five, so imagine if it was only three people witnessed the resurrection. How would you feel about that? How confident would you be? Mm. But it's 500 people. Is that far more compelling? Mm. If you had a court case mm. and, and you, one side only had three witnesses and the other had 500? Mm. Quite compelling. And so the reason that we can have the accuracy of the copies, although we don't have the original New Testament documents, because we have so many of them that were written independently, so some were written in Egypt and Syria um, and across the Mediterranean world, they were written independently. So it wasn't one copy going around and all the others being copied. Um, is that we have a huge confidence that they were using a source document, which would have been the originals. And so the work that the scholars have been able to do is they now believe with 6,000 manuscripts at hand, all from different places, and so the people who copied them had no relationship to others who copied them, is that we believe we got 99.5% of the original words that were written down because of the number of copies. And so if someone tells you, how can you... How can you trust the Bible was written so long ago? Do you ever hear that question? Yes. How would you answer that one? How do you know the Bible is accurate? You know, you're telling me to trust in this book. It was written thousands of years ago. Who knows? It's been changed. So, so this scientific work gives us strong confidence that we have the original word. So this is, this, we apply these techniques to all, all ancient documents, not just the Bible. So there's a consistent process. So this gives us confidence that we've got the original words that were written down because of the volume of the copies. And no one else would be worried about Tacitus or Caesar or Plato about the accuracy of those. And we've got very few copies of those. But it's only the Bible that people question, how do you know it's accurate? So there's a wealth of information to demonstrate that we have the original words. Whether the original words are true or not, that's another question, isn't it? But to say, hey, we know that we've got the original words. We have a high degree of confidence because of the scholarly work, scientific work that's been done. So that, that's really key that helps us to understand that. That makes sense? Mm -hmm. Anyone want to ask any questions about that? So it's the volume of copies of the Bible that make it less likely to have been altered. So yeah. The volume of so it's the independent witnesses. So if you, so if you went to a trial and you had a mum and daughter saying exactly the same thing word for word. Would you believe that there were two testimonies, or really one, that they've, they've collaborated? Um, they said word for word, yeah. probably, but they collaborated. That's right. Yes. And, and so there are some differences in those manu in manuscripts. In other words, differences like one, one scribe might use the word John, another one might use the word Jonathan. Right. And that's their kind of style. Right. And that doesn't affect the meaning of that. So when we talk about 6,000 
manuscripts were talking about independent witnesses, that they weren't like family members. You know, if you've got to have a document certified, can't be family members. Mm. And so these are independent documents. So that helps us to have confidence that in a scientific way of analysing those, that we've got a high degree of confidence of over 99, 99.5% that we've got the original words, because there are too many independent witnesses. And that's what we do at a trial, to see what is reasonable. And so, because they were found in different areas, written by different scribes at different times, we can uh, uh, have a, a, a strong level of confidence in those Bible documents. So that's on, uh, so yeah, so I was just highlighting that. Sorry, I should have done that before. Here's just a copy, I've seen this, and Judy's seen this as well. This is in Manchester, England. This is a copy of, from the Gospel of John. It's dated around 125 AD. And it's the earliest copy of the New Testament that we have, from John 18. And so that's pretty amazing. So if, we've got a, if that's a copy, that means the originals were circulating before that date, because they didn't have a photocopy machine or a printing press. It took a while to copy things. And so that we know that the Gospels were circulating within decades of Jesus being alive. And this is, the, this is the biggest decision of our lives, to trust in God, we have his word. Having some confidence in this is important. And so we've got copies of the Bible that go back to the really early days of the second generation. Let's show you that. So, that's kind of the volume of manuscripts. It really gives confidence. If someone asks you, how do we know the words in here are accurate or not? Scientifically, is the, a scientific response is the right way to go. The other thing is we want to look at here is, again, the English language is not static. As we, we, we talked about the, um, the verses from Gay Clothing, from the authorised King James Version this morning. 1611 English is very different from the English of today, isn't it? Now, what's gay clothing, as we spoke of? It means fine clothes. And uh, many linguists now believe that, that the, the English uh, language has changed more in the last 400 years than the Greek language has changed in 2,000 years. Because the Greek language has basically stayed very much traditional. And our English language, as it's gone around the world, has evolved and adapted. You think New Zealand English, even from Australian English, is, is different, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And so, um, to give you an example here, Sam, do you want to read out this? Um, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye compass sea and land to make one proselyte. And when he is made, ye make him twofold more the child of hell than yourselves. Thank you. That's the words from Jesus from Matthew twenty-three fifteen. That's in the King Authorized King James Version. Alana, do you want to read that from the New King James Version? Oh, no, the New International Version. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Thanks, Alana. And Karen, do you want to read another one? You can read the message. Okay. You're hopeless, you religion scholars and Pharisees, frauds. 
You go halfway around the world to make a convert, but once you get them, you make them into a replica of yourselves <laughs> to all the end. Thank you. What's, what sticks out to you as you read those different uh, translations of the, or two are translations, one's a paraphrase of the message, we'll come on to that in a minute. What stands out? What, the King James Version, is that the easiest one to read? No. 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 The NIV? No. What about the message? So they're, they're all from the same, you can be taking the same Greek manuscripts mm. and you can come up with those three different translations. Mm. As of two are translations, one isn't. And, uh, but the King authorised King James is pretty hard to read, isn't it? Mm. Everyone find that? Mm. Grace, do you find it easy to read? That bit's not bad, but your other bit's terrible. <laughs> yeah. But in 1611, in the 17th century, that was refined, really good English. Mm. It was a great document of, of literature, mm. or translation of literature, and people thought it was wonderful. And many of the sayings from the authorised King James become part of language today, mm. even today, because they are so beautifully written. And so we, we, we have these challenges. The language is constantly changing. And so, Julie, you can read this one. Do you? And you can guess which, which, which language this is. <laughs> Suddenly this humongous bunch of angels turned up <laughs> alongside the original lone angel. Every one of them was enthusiastic. Wow, God's just fantastic, they said. And around this place we trust you all have a happy Christmas. <laughs> oh my goodness, what is this? <laughs> As it were. <laughs> As it were. <laughs> When the angels had taken off again, the farm workers had um, a yarn. How about we head off down to Bethlehem? Uh, then we can see for ourselves the special kid God's, God's rep just told us about. Everyone agreed, so they took, off, took to their heels, took, off, took, took to their heels. Sure as they found Mary and Joe and the wee bloke in the feeding box. They spread the news among their mates, mm. and everyone was pretty well blown away by all accounts. <laughs> well read. Now, well, what translation do you think that is? Oh, well done. You recognise it. It's the Kiwi Bible. You've all heard of that? How come you haven't all got Kiwi Bibles? Oh, it's up the top. It is now. I just put it up the top. I hit it, I hit it before, and then I put it back up there. Yeah. There is a Kiwi Bible. Yeah. No way. And so the whole thing is to help Kiwis understand it nah. in their own language. Seriously. You don't believe me? No, I believe you. <laughs> the wee bloke. The wee bloke. <laughs> and so why do you think there are all these translations? It should say nipper. Nipper. The wee bloke. The hate around the sea. Every single people group that you possibly think of. I think people are trying to earn their way into heaven. People are trying to earn their way. There's Foster's oh, comments. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So these are part of the challenges that we face because language is constantly changing, mm. isn't it? And uh, that makes it kind of hard. 
And if you think of, of um, now this one here, I'll get you to read these. There's only three of them, so you can read them out all, Grace. Oh, okay. Here's the first one, Psalm 119, verse 105. Um, so in the authorised King James Version, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Mm. And then in the NIV, Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. Is there much difference between those two? No. Three are types of methodologies. There's a formal equivalence, and I'll explain these in a moment, which means a word-for-word -word translation. So it's looking at the original Hebrew or Greek, finding the closest English word, and using that to translate into English. Dynamic equivalence is trying to think, what was the thought the author was trying to communicate, and write that into English. And then the paraphrase is, is the message of the Living Bible, is really contemporary relevance interpretation. How do we bring it into our own modern language to help, you know, especially the younger generation, perhaps to, to grasp that? And so to try and help you see that, we'll look at the text in a minute, is um, just think of this. These are the, the challenges our translators have. Anyone know what comata llamas means? It's in Spanish. What are the llamas doing? Oh. Nice try, Karen. <laughs> I like that one. Come here. That's how are you or how something? It's a question. Yeah. Well done. What is that something? Yeah. Okay. Literal translation. How yourself call. So, is that helpful? If you're reading it and... and um, and David goes up to someone and says, how yourself call? <laughs> Would that be helpful? And so some translators are trying to smooth that out. How do you call yourself? Is some translators would use. Is that, is that natural? What would we say? What's your name? What's your name? Well done, go to the top of the class. And so these are the kind of challenges that Many of these Bible translations have been translated by, by scholars and in groups of scholars. So they're very, uh, uh, they're very uh, academic and they're, they're very steeped in learning languages. But these are the kind of challenges that they're facing. Because how you call, how yourself call, but that's the literal, sounds very clunky. And so you don't really want to use that in English, do you? And so, um, so the A, we changed the form to reproduce the meaning. So if we were doing a literal translation, how, you, how yourself call, we try and reproduce that, that meaning in a way that we can understand in English. And all good translations try and modify the form to reproduce meaning. I said, some might do it, how do you call yourself, trying to keep to the original yamas, and others will just change it so that we can understand it in English. How about this one, Morgenstund, Hat gold im mund. Anyone know what that means? That's German. Uh, something about good morning. So this is the German saying, mm. a bit like the uh, the urinating on the wall saying. Mm. Something so about, something about good morning. Something about with gold. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> no. no. Well, literally, the morning hour yeah. has gold in its mouth. Yeah. You all got it now? Yeah. Make absolute sense. Oh, 
That is impressive. I wasn't expecting anyone to get that grace, so well done. Yeah. You know German? No. How did you get that No, the morning... Just your farming background. Did you know that, Foster? You nod your head now. So, of course. Your, um, your red um, hand helped. Yes, that's how I was going. The morning. Yeah. But how do you translate that? If that was uh, in the Bible, that's really hard, isn't it, in English, mm. without departing? Because mm. there's no early bird in, 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 in the literal translation. It doesn't mention it. But it's a saying for meaning. How about this one? This is Spanish. Tomar el pelo. Anyone know what that means? No? Tomorrow? To grab someone's hair. So, what might that mean as a, an idiom? You think? Anyone, anyone lived in Spain? In Spain? We've got an idioms expert here. As an idioms are, 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 are sayings. So well done. I think. Yeah, I think we want, If we have a quiz, we want Grace on our team, don't we? Always. <laughs> Always. So well done. Uh, and so again, these are all in the Bible. Okay, they're, they're full of them. And so, if you, the translation uh, approach will impact, well, can impact on how you're translating idioms. And so, in some literal translations, it's hard to, um, uh, to change from to grab someone's hair. It's for us to understand when it's really talking about, in English, pulling someone's leg. Mm. So, the translators have a quandary. How do I get that meaning across? Mm. And here's a Hebrew one. Yada means no. Adam knew his wife. What do you think that means? Except for Grace. Anyone else know? He consummated. He stepped with her. Thank you for those answers. That's absolutely why. Right. And that that word yada is 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 um used in other verses to say David knew Jonathan, David knew Saul. Does that mean that David was having intimate relationships with them? So how do we know that in, 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 in this context that is talking about uh, sexual relations? How would you know whether that yada means? Because on the next line it probably said and beget someone. Well done, Foster. I can see your, your, your genes. There's a connection between your genes and graces. That's right. It's the context. The context tells you. So if you're, in, if you're in, in a royal court, it's talking about knowing someone. If it's saying we beget some children in the next verse, you know it's talking they're having sexual relationships with man and wife. So, uh, so again, the context then becomes really important how we figure these things out. This is the last one now. Zavat halav uvdavash. Who knows that? No? I'm sure you, you know davash, Julie. You do, you've forgotten. Does that literally mean that uh, Israel is, is a land full of milk? There's milk trees and, and, and tree coming out of waterfalls and honey everywhere? What does that mean? It's got grass for cows and flowers for bees. Okay, so it's a very fertile land. Is that what you're saying? Yes. And that's right, spacious and fertile. Fertile. Yeah. 
And, and so, again, it's trying to understand this. That's a common phrase, uh, phrase over there, land of milk and honey. And so the translators have got to figure out what does that mean to us in English. And so there's some phrases we know. We know raining cats and dogs. We know what that means, doesn't it? But, um, and, and so we've got to figure out what it meant and how then we communicate that in a different language. So here is one of the ways to think about those different translations, take different approaches on those things. And so here on the left side, we've got word for word. So the New American Standard, the English Standard, the King James Version, the New King James Version, are trying that literal approach to try and find uh, the closest English word to the Hebrew word. And so just to, uh, uh, to uh, try and make sure there's, there's less error in their communicating that. But the challenge of that, as we've just seen, is that when you've got sayings and idioms, it's very hard to translate them and know what they are. And so how, how yourself call can sound a bit clunky, can't it? And so, I don't think any of you experience some of these, these, these versions. They're a bit hard to read, aren't they? It takes a bit more effort. And, and so, the thought for thought translations, which are the middle group, the, um, uh, especially the New International Version, New American Bible, New International Readers Version, Holman Christian Bible, Good News translation, they're all trying to communicate the thought. What did the author want to communicate in English? Come on to Yamis. What's your name? And that's kind of what they're trying to do in that middle name. So uh, that's, and that's why I like the NIV version, because it helps me just to try and get some of the, uh, the thoughts or the meaning, although it may not be the exact English equivalent of each Greek or Hebrew word. The paraphrase, you see there, the Living Bible and, and, and the message are right at the very end. And so they have very little reference to the words in Greek and Hebrew, and so the translators, or the ones who are doing the paraphrases, as it's restating in their own words, is there's a heavy reliance on their capability to capture the meaning and put it into modern, modern words. And so you've got these whole range of Bibles on here. And so the, again, that's probably not easy to see, but again, it's the same, it's just got some more versions on there. And again, it just shows you the word for word, thought for thought, thought, paraphrase. So when you're thinking about buying a Bible, you just want to consider how the translators are translating. Does that make sense? Mm. Any questions about this? Would you say the paraphrase Bibles are possibly too far away from what was originally written on some on some things? Or well, they won't bear much meaning to the original words in Greek or Hebrew. But they're trying to convey it today, like using flash lamp instead of uh, you know, a flashlight, instead of, of um, a lamp, which our young kids might struggle with today, because they've probably never seen a lamp, have they? Mm. Oh, mm -hmm. Yeah, but, but when the NIV says the, um, you know, the light for the path, that the lamp for the path and the light, the lamp for the yeah. feet and the light for the path is talking about um, the Bible being this um, revelation of where we are. And that's the challenge with some of these, is that you, you, they, they're trying to convey a meaning, but might then be too far away mm. from, from the, the original mm. context. Mm. 
and that's a, a challenge for those at that end of the spectrum. Any other thoughts you can think of? About? Kind of handy sometimes to have um, uh, like the message so that you can, if you've found a passage that is, you're thinking, what is that? And you look up the message and you go, oh, okay, is it to do with that? And then you kind of can go back in between. The new living, it's interesting that it's there because for that um, Psalm 1, 119, it says, Your word is a lamp to guide my feet and a light for my path. So it's not really hugely away from away from the NIV, is it? No, no but it's the same thought for thought. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of right on the edge of that. That's right. It's, it's going like, right towards the right side. The new living is, is again, it's a step towards the paraphrase, but it's, yeah. not, but it's not there. And it's, there's a more of a linkage to um, thought for thought than a paraphrase of the message of the Living Bible. Yeah. Would you say, would you say that um, all of those Bibles have a place to play, to play in, in their interpretation, their understanding of the original text? And we need to know. If we're using the message, we need to know that it's a paraphrase, and we may not, we may need to go back towards a, a thought for thought or word for word thing to enhance it. So I'm, I'm going to do what Jesus often did. What do you think? <laughs> yes. I think that's what you think. I think that's what I think. <laughs> yeah. So if 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 we're doing a, like a Bible study, yeah. I would never stick to just one version, mm. particularly if there's some difficult passages. Mm. I use the NIV, and then I might look at a, a, a word for word to try and say, hey, how close are these to the original meaning? And if I'm still struggling, I might go to a paraphrase to see if there's something in there I'm not grasping. And so, you know, so if you want to do a devotion or whatever, it's, it's kind of helpful to use more than one translation. And that's what I do. I never usually, unless I'm just doing my devotional reading. I, I, I will just use the NIV, but if I'm wanting to do some kind of study or dig into it, I typically use several versions. Where would you put the Kiwi Bible then? <laughs> <laughs> it's, with, it's with the Living Bible. Yes, the Kiwi Bible. Yeah, it's so easy to compare these days on, you know, with technology. Mm. And, and that's right. So we've got those tools to do that today, which was very expensive a few years ago, even like 20 years ago. If you wanted to do this, you had to buy all the different Bibles, and that can be a bit more expensive. But we've got tools to do that. Um, I'm going to come back to that. Where am I going? They've gone to sleep. Okay, so yeah, this is just summarising some of those things that we've been talking about. Here come the advantages of each one. So the literal is effective for word studies. And so because it's using the closest English word for the Hebrew or Greek, it's much easier to do a word study. If you want to really dig into what a, a word really means, then uh, the literal, literal versions are quite ha handy. Gives you a sense of the original text. Really shows you where, where to dig a bit because you can see some of these words and, and why it's in there. Might be using the passage reveals where, the, where some of the problems are um, as you try and, and get back to uh, the Hebrew or Greek. Um, 
But what they won't do is help you with idioms and sayings, because they all sound clunky. The fourth of thought is, it's, again, you can do word studies, because it's uh, still fairly close to literal ones, but, but um, not as effective. Its, it's aim is to bring more understanding rather than the sense of the original text. It does show you where to, to dig by comparison when you compare a literal and a, a full for thought. It shows you, hey, where the differences are. And then you can dig into why are those words quite different and see why. And the thought for thought tries to translate idioms. So the one about germ, but the early word, uh, early bird gets the worm. They try and translate those meanings so we can grasp it in English. And the paraphrase, basically, it's the big picture, flow of the whole. It will give you some, some sense of translations of parables and idioms. It's easy to read. Supposedly, it's the easiest to understand. But maybe for some of the younger ones, but I, I, I don't find it easy to <laughs> understand because my mind is always somewhere in here. And so I find it hard because you can't... Now, the, the words don't really bear reflection to some of the verses. You know, if you do memory verses and things, you know, you learn things. It just doesn't connect. And so I find that hard. But for some of the younger generation, it might actually be helpful um, to actually try and convey the modern, modern meaning. And so there are some of those key differences. Can I just ask a question? Sure, yeah. What would be the paraphrase one? Could it not, could it not change meaning on some of the verses, could it not actually change because it's so far to the other extreme where if they've used some words that are, are very different to what the, the, the literal Greek or Hebrew were or the thought for thought, could it not actually change this, what the verse is actually trying to imply? It, it, it can do, and that, that's right. So the further you go away from the literal, the more likely they say you know, you, 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 there can be an error. But in, in this side, you can also get areas because errors because you're not yeah. grasping that. Mm. But the, fa the paraphrase, you're more reliant on whoever's doing that paraphrase to know that they've got a good knowledge mm. of the whole Bible and, and, and the, the, got the right translation skills. Mm. Whereas here, because they're using more, more um, uh, a, a process of finding appropriate words to, to, to change, they're, they're trying to keep to the English equivalents more of, of the Greek and Hebrew. The paraphrase is just really trying to grasp what it means and then, then just speak that in common language. So if they've misunderstood what a, a particular verse was, then they're going to convey that in their meaning. And so... Um, I was I'm sort of thinking that... I, I think... I'm thinking that the cultural differences actually... Uh, the bigger where you get misunderstood misunderstandings and I, I suppose in translations they're taking those things into account but you still have to study beyond what the words are actually saying to understand the context don't you Ab absolutely and so that, that context is critical to whatever verses you're reading mm. it helps to inform um, what, the, what the book's about mm. is it poetry, is it literature yeah. is it narrative and the purposes. They're all really important questions. Alana? Uh, for me, I'll probably go more towards the paraphrase. I'm a very visual learner. So like say, um, someone could be reading a scripture, but I'll be picturing it in a whole new concept, but I get it. 
like so we'll be talking two languages someone will be explaining something and I think also too as um, as uh, Karen just said culture my culture don't really emphasize on words mm. like we're very uh, sit down you read it the context but then we talk about it like we talk so it's very different from how I was raised when reading the Bible unfortunately it was in Samoan it's even worse. <laughs> yeah, so we, we don't go into what well, I know from my family. We ne I've never been brought up going into depth, which is quite in some ways a disadvantage because then you have someone like Richard who, or you know, teaches us. And I thought, wow, that's really cool. <laughs> but we have to grow into it yeah. until, be, especially if you're just around Samoan culture, that's all we know. So if the, if the minister stays there, that's where we stay. But then you go into a different culture where I've come into a different culture mm. here, if I can call it that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's like, wow, my brain hurts. <laughs> but it's good hurt because it's like, I never knew that. Yeah. yeah. But we're very oral. My culture's growing up oral, orally. Not, we've written is not. Yeah. That's why we lose land. <laughs> it's a handshake of a, of, of a jandal. Anyway, sorry. So, but yeah, so I've always struggled coming from someone reading the Samoan word into English. So when people go, oh, this word, this word, I'm like, what's, what's, the, what's the problem? Yeah, you know? Well, but it's cool because... Why they emphasise the word? Why they emphasise the word? It's just the word, God. You know? I'm already like on the creative buzz going, oh, this is cool, this is happening. But yeah, but when you do explain stuff, I go immediately into picture form, so my mind's already playing it out as a video or something. Yeah. Thanks for that, Lana. Yeah. So you had the Bible in Samoan. Yeah. Do you know if that's been translated from Hebrew and Greek into Samoan, or has it gone English and then into Samoan? I'm, I'm just saying when the missionaries came over, yeah. I don't know, and it was probably Yeah. yeah. It, it may well have been from the original languages, because a translator would normally be familiar with the original languages. Mm, yeah. And so most of these ones up here, you're talking about scholars, even the paraphrase ones, you know, um, they're scholars doing these, and they're usually a group of scholars who can test and question that. And so they're likely to go back to the source documents today. When you go back pre the, the Renaissance, they were using Latin versions. And so we had a Latin version of the Bible from about the 4th century. And there are some, some glaring errors that were in there that only got discovered once the early Greek manuscripts, because the, the, the New Testament was written in Greek, were discovered, and then they found that those who translated into Latin had made some boo-boos in that. Yeah, you know, and those are, you know, we haven't got time to talk to about those here, <laughs> but um, that, that was a challenge. But, but most scholars today um, are, are pretty good in, in, in all these translations that we're talking about that I've listed up there, um, which is important. Right, and the last area we're just going to quickly look at is the different translation methodologies. We've done that, and the quality of manuscripts. Okay, which texts are best to use? We've got 6,000 of them. Which ones are the best? So you've got your manuscripts from all over the place, they're copies. Which copies are likely to be most accurate? The oldest. The oldest, there you go. Well done, Grace. Um, and and that, that's, uh, that's a key thing in, in thinking about those. 
and to try and help us. You know, there's, when I w w was at Bible college, they started talking about textual criticism. That sounds really negative, doesn't it? You think of critics knocking things down. But actually, the science of criticism is actually a positive thing. It's a, it's a way of trying to understand and validate that, we, that, that process has been done right and we've got the right understanding or something. So, so it's not. So uh, the textual criticism is the process uh, has the goal of moving back in time to restore copies to as close as possible to the original text using scientific processes. And so textual criticism is actually a good thing. It gives us confidence that we're getting back to the early ones as possible. So I said it's a positive tool. And, uh, but you know, we worship God with our mind as well as our spirit. So God can speak to us when we're reading the Bible. But also we love God with our minds. Mm -hmm. And so part of that is just making sure we've got the right copy. We believe the original was inspired, but we don't have the original documents anymore. And so all this is about making sure that the copies we do have are as reliable as we possibly can see. So here's an example. In Mark chapter 1, verse 2, in the New King James Version, it says, as it is written in the prophets. In the NIV, it says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Aha! We've got proof here that the Bible is full of mistakes. Don't you think? <laughs> Who's right? Which do we, do we throw the NKG version in the bin or do we throw the NIV in the bin? How do you know? Well, but if it's all inspired, wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't they be the same? So, so these are the we've got two manuscripts, okay, going back, you know, uh, 18, 1700 years, 1500 years. One says, as it is written in the prophets, and the other says, as is written in the Isaiah. So, were they using 40 manuscripts, one of them? Why are they saying the same thing? These copyists, because they were copying from the originals. I think the difference is, um, I think the difference is insignificant to the meaning. So, um, so yeah, I think you mentioned earlier that um, where some uh, some manuscripts were slightly different, that that sort of um, was almost a validation that they were authentic because individuals would um, make slight mis not mistakes, but just. Uh, Different differences. Yeah. So if we, we witness an accident, two people may see different things about the accident. They wouldn't be word for word exactly the same no, that we think they've been yeah. talking to one another. That's true. And that, so that kind of helps in here. Um, but it, it means that one of the copyists was copying from one manuscript and someone else was copying from a different manuscript. I was 
Okay. Okay. We'll, 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 we'll come to that in a moment. It's interesting. All the early manuscripts, as an example, the earliest manuscripts that we've discovered from the second, third centuries, the NIV uses those manuscripts when it's translating. And so when we read the writings of the early church fathers, these are the, the church leaders in the second and third century, they see most of them, except one, is supporting the NIV translation of Isaiah the prophet. Is that a belief today? <coughs> or, yeah. or back, not that, back no, no, these are the copies of the manuscripts yes. we've got. Yes. And we've got two manuscripts yes. there, and they've they're, they're got those two differences oh, on there. No, yeah. but, but what we're saying is that the what I'm saying is that the earliest dated manuscripts, we can date them to the third, second and third century, third and, and fourth, are the ones that have um, Isaiah the prophets. The later manuscripts have got the prophets. So there's a difference in time there between were, Scott, sorry, were they written in Greek or Hebrew? This is the New Testament, so it's been written in Greek. And, and so um, it's interesting that this is a quote. Does someone want to read Matthew, Matthew Mark 1, 2? Uh, it began just as the prophet Isaiah had written, Look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, and he will prepare your way. Does that say three? I think that says three. Hear the voice yelling in the Hears a voice shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord's coming, clear the road for him. Well, that's probably why they put Isaiah, because that's clearly okay, yeah. the book of Isaiah. So, so Malachi is, um, has in there, quite, I'll send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. That's in Malachi, yeah. the last book of the uh, Old Testament. Mm, I was going to say that there could be more. And Isaiah 40, verse 3. There's a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And so Mark is quoting both of those. But when we understand one of the themes of, of, of Mark is that Jesus is fulfilling the prophecies of Isaiah. It's part of that theme. It's the, the early manuscripts were probably picking up on, on, on Mark's intent to say, hey, this is Isaiah coming to life. Now, what probably happened is um, a couple of centuries later, the uh, later copyist looked at that and thought, oh, it's only got Isaiah, when actually part of it is from Malachi, and changed it from as it is written in Isaiah the prophet to as it is written in the prophets. Because otherwise they're thinking, oh, perhaps there's a mistake. And the, the early copyist made a mistake. I'm going to correct that because Mark is referring to both of those. And so you can say that they're both correct, but the early ones is probably because Mark had the theme of talking about Isaiah and his prophecies being fulfilled as Jesus starts his ministry. And that's why the focus is on Isaiah and not Isaiah and Malachi. And so... Um, Typically, the way scholars think about that is the harder reading is usually more, more likely to be the original. 
And later copies tend to smooth out any difficult texts. So you've got a later copy, they think, oh, was there a mistake by the previous copyist? And we don't really want to have lots of mistakes, and so they try and smooth it out in their copying. And so we believe that the later ones changed it from, not change the meaning or anything, as such, because Isaiah is one of the prophets. Uh, but it has changed the emphasis slightly because of, of, of part of Mark's theme was trying to bring the message of Isaiah into his gospel. And so that, that tells us something. That if I've got an NIV here, and I've got a King James version here, when the King James version was written, we didn't have that many manuscripts that had been dug up and found. They're okay. directly late. Yeah, they, they, they had copies, but they were later copies from like the 5th fifth, fifth century, mm. 200 years later. And so the King James, the New King James, as always as updates in the language, are using later manuscripts. Okay. Whereas the NIV is going back more to the earlier manuscripts that we've since discovered since this was written. Yes. So they did a fantastic job. Yes. Of what they did, and the language is beautiful for its time. Yeah, what they could do. Yeah, but here the earlier copies all would say it's talking about Isaiah there, and so whatever copy you're using, just think about the NIV. NIV is using earlier manuscripts, so the King James and the New King James haven't changed the manuscripts that they're, they're translating from. They've decided to keep them, even though they're later ones. And so when you're reading that, that's an issue. You know, in the New King James Version, which Tom has got, um, is that it's, it's using a later manuscript. Mm. And so some of there are differences between that and the earlier ones. The copies, some have made mistakes, um, uh, which, which aren't as accurate as some of the early, early ones. But they're not changing the meaning in, most, in, in nearly all of those cases. So um, it's just, just important to, to wear. When you pick up a Bible, you're thinking, no, why, no, why are there differences? Grace. Um, so we're mostly talking about the New Testament through all of this, aren't yeah. we? So with the Old Testament, which was the, it was the Jewish holy yeah. book, so it was around for a really long time, and they copied it heaps. Yeah. Did they translate it much, or did it stay in English? And what are our Bibles using as their basis for the Old Testament? Okay, very good question. Okay, we've got um, just conscious of time, <laughs> but the um, as I said, there, there's a copy of, of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, in in the Israel Museum. It's dated to about um, the 10th century. They then found the Dead Sea Scrolls, mm, yes. which were dated to 100 BC, yeah. so 100 years before Jesus. Yeah. And there was very little difference between the two versions, the two translations, even though they were written in different places by different people, different times. You know, the Dead Sea Scrolls, they were an isolated community who were writing these down. And so that's given us an awful lot of confidence. The other thing we do have is that there was a copy of the Hebrew Bible that was translated into Greek around 250 years before Jesus. It's called the Septuagint. Mm. And so it's likely that Paul and the others were, were sometimes quoting, because we can see the Septuagint, it still exists today, 
uh, they're quoting from there, because there's slight variations between the Septuagint um, and, and the, the other translations from Hebrew to, to Greek. So that was 250 scholars um, translated the Hebrew into the Greek, 250 BC. And so that's a fantastic source of information, and most of that corresponds, again, with the Hebrew. Now, the, the, um, other than the Dead Sea Scrolls, the um, copies that we have uh, of the Hebrew Bible mainly date between the 7th to the 10th centuries AD, when a group of Hebrew scribes called Masorites started copying the Bibles. That became their, their, their whole vocation, and they wanted to copy that as accurately as possible. So the ones that they were copying, we don't have those old ones anymore. Um, but what they were doing, if they made a mistake, they would scrape it out so carefully and to, because they would want to be really exact with their, with their copying. And if they made a real hash of it, rather than destroy the, the, the scroll, they would bury it because they didn't want to destroy God's word. And so they really valued it. But there's a high degree of confidence um, in their ability to copy. Now there are just a few other issues in there because we didn't have they didn't have vowels in those time, in that time, and so they started putting vowels in there, which again was a bit of an interpretation. We have vowels in our language, don't we? Mm -hmm. They have vowels today because they have a dot or a dash. It tells you if it's an oo sound or an ass sound or an e sound, and, and that's their, their vowels. And, and so we have some great evidence there of the Bible being preserved by a really dedicated. Um, uh, scholars and scribes who wanted to, and so we've got enough copies to be confident from the Greek, the Greek um, translation 250 AD to the copy in the, in, in the 10th century, and then for these Masoretes. And so our Hebrew here, sorry, the Hebrew in here is typically the, what we call that Masoretic text in the Hebrew Bible. So the, the, the scribes around there in Tiberius, around where Jesus was, about the 9th or 10th century became really renowned for copying the Hebrew Bible. And so we, so we, we got enough evidence to say they did a good job of that. Does that help, Grace? So there we go. So just again, just as just finishing now, conscious of time, I guess you know, we want to read the Bible better. And this is just a journey of just trying to equip us to be better readers of the Bible um, and to try and understand their culture and context and not just simply sticking our interpretation um, it's very quick, it's very easy to read a passage and then all of us go around and say, this is what the Bible means to me. Mm. And that might be nice, mm -hmm. but it might not bear any, 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 any resemblance to what the principle or whatever was in that passage that we've just been reading. And so we need to think, what was the author meaning uh, in the first place? And how does that then apply to us? It doesn't mean that God can't speak to us really clearly but in terms, in general terms, you know, we, we, we want to go to the application before understanding the meaning. And we just simply put our own meaning in there. So that's part of our challenge in there. And again, we believe this is God speaking, and the humans were, were um, divine, so there's a, the Holy Spirit's a divine mm. agent, and he was using humans yeah. to actually communicate those messages. Yeah. And so I, the human characters come out mm. in all of, all of the writers too. And it was delivered in historical, cultural situations and contexts, which we need to understand if we want to make sure that we're actually 
getting the right meaning that we can apply today. And that all takes work, doesn't it? And so that's part of our journey. But what I love about the Bible is that you see that unity and diversity. The Holy Spirit believes the editor. We have 40 different um, writers over 1,500 years, three different countries, different jobs, from um, shepherds to prime ministers, <laughs> all involved in this, and great leaders, and just ordinary people. Oh, and there's a real sense of unity from Genesis to Revelation in that. And in fact, there's more Hebrew quotations in the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, than in any other New Testament book. And so, that's part of the miracle. And that's probably it. Uh, I'm just conscious. This is last slide. This I just showed last week is, the, the, again, this is just summarizing that, that journey which we'll go through in the weeks ahead. How do we go back in, in time? The further we go back in time, the harder it is to um, go back. You know, if you go back to the first century, it's a bit easier to understand. If you go back to three and a half thousand years ago, it's very, the, the culture's even more different. Mm -hmm. And harder work is needed to actually understand the, the differences between the time of Moses and the time of Jesus in the Roman times. So we're a bit more familiar. Figure out the principle, and then how do we understand it back in our time, over here, and how do we go off and apply it in our own town? And that's, that, that's all we're going to be doing over these coming weeks, and we'll be looking at different, different books of the Bible, uh, sorry, different genres of the Bible. So we'll probably start with the letters, and we'll go through to the other ones as well. And, uh, no, sorry. and that's where we'll finish. Well, the time is quarter to wait now. Anyone want to make any final comments as we close? Or reflections? When you, when you were talking about the Masoretic? Was that kind of around the time they were a bit later than Islam and um, and the right? But but in Islam, they they like to say that the Bible has been changed and it's got a lot of in. Comes from the, so the Islam comes from about the 7th century, so these Masoretic and the Masoretic texts are about the 10th century in Tiberias around the Sea of Galilee. Now, um, Islam was early, early as 7th century, so it's about 1300 years ago. And, and, and so, um, Muhammad probably met some, some not very helpful Christians and Jews in terms of trying to communicate their religion. and. Um, Muhammad tried to reach out with them saying, hey, I've got this new revelation from God. And almost like God faxed me, <laughs> faxed me mm. the Koran. Right. He basically got a download. And then... An appearance of an angel.